0: Happy International Sex Workers' Day or Happy International Whores' Day, whichever one you choose to run with. It's the 2nd of June and it's the day we celebrate the birth of the sex worker rights movement. The movement we recognise internationally today began in 1975 in France and more specifically in the churches of Lyon. There's a good chance that you might be listening to the podcast and you have no idea about sex workers' rights, their movements, and you had no idea it was International Sex Workers' Day. And that's fine. We don't expect everyone to come prepared. So I want to start there. And I want to tell the story of this day so we can truly appreciate and celebrate it. So to do that, we're going to have to go briefly back in time to France, 1960. <music> Before the sixties, France was this defender of sexual freedom. It was seriously liberal on its views of selling sex. But in 1960, France tried to ban sex work and it had awful consequences. Like any trade that goes underground, the police ended up pocketing some profits and pimping sex workers. In 1973, there is a public outcry and an uproar. When sex workers had had enough, they were sick of the police exploiting them. In response to this public outcry, the police arrested the women. They were going pretty hard on sex workers They started arresting them for anything they could, loitering for suspiciously standing anywhere. But they also arrested their partners and neighbours, friends, for being complicit. They were really trying to isolate them. They were trying to destroy the community. If the harassment, police brutality and sexual assaults weren't bad enough, To top it all off, sex workers begin to disappear, and a serial killer had begun taking advantage of the now very easy and increasingly vulnerable targets. Social movements around the world were beginning to challenge oppressive and outdated ideas. It's straight after the civil rights movement, It's at the height of the international women's movement, the gay liberation movement is happening and ultimately people are throwing rocks. They are pissed off and they're challenging the status quo. The sex workers of France have had enough of living underground on the edges of society and small groups begin rallying in August 1973. They're at that point where they have nothing to lose anymore and everything to gain. The media mocks them, ridicules them and the police arrest them but it was really just the start of their fight. Two years into the fight for liberation in France in 1975 the sex workers managed to gain an ally that changed the game. It was one of the most powerful institutions in France, the Catholic Church. On the 2nd of June, Father Louis Blanc, an ally until the very end, gave sanctuary to hundreds of sex workers during the protests in Lyon for eight days. Eight beautiful days passed of solidarity and peaceful protests, And then the police broke into the churches in riot gear to bring the rally in to a screeching halt these protests threw sex worker rights into the mainstream the 2nd of june is where it all began and it will always be marked and remembered as international sex workers day All over the world, sex workers are fighting differently wherever they are because there is no global standard. There are different laws in every country, so every individual's fight is going to be unique. I'm in Australia and here states make their own laws. Sex work has been partially legalized in Victoria and decriminalized in the Northern Territory and New South Wales. But today, I'm going to be focusing on Victoria, because despite partial legalisation, the existing Victorian laws are overly complex and still criminalise most workers. Today's episode touches on law reform, but it's mostly about one woman's story. My guest is a retired sex worker, an activist and a fierce campaigner for sex workers' rights. She comes with the message that sex work is work. It should be decriminalised and we should acknowledge and support the sex workers in our community. You're going to love her, I promise. You're listening to Shut Up, She's Talking. I'm Alice and today we sit down with Lisa. Lisa and I met on a hot day in Melbourne before we knew anything about the pandemic that was just on our doorstep and before we knew how different the world would be in just a couple of months time we were settled into a warm studio and i just ran to get her one more glass of water before we got stuck in oh thank you
1: my dear lovely
0: lisa's from new zealand but i wanted to know more about lisa where she's lived how she ended up in melbourne and when she got into politics? Oh, my goodness. Goodness. Uh, It's a very long story. <laughs> long years.
1: I've lived in Sydney and I've lived in the UK. I've lived in Greece. I spent a few months in Amsterdam. I've been in Melbourne nearly 30 years now. Oh, actually, no, 30 years this year. Wow. So it's, it's been a long journey. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, as and,
0: they say. And did you begin your activism in
1: Melbourne? Yes. Now, I never thought, expected to be involved in politics and I never... I've always been a very vocal feminist and I've always been very left-leaning in my own politics and a believer in social justice, but in terms of actually getting strongly involved in campaigns, I've never really done that up until fairly recently, but just over a year ago, or no, a year and a half ago, when was it? So about halfway through 2017, I think, we, I started to learn about the law in relation to sex work and i started to realize how unfair it was and then the more i learned the more workers i spoke to and the more i heard about it i realized that something needs to be done it's mm. basically a human rights issue it's a workers
0: rights issue so yeah the 2017 was my year of awakening <laughs> Wow. And did anything trigger that or did that come did you meet anybody that kind of opened your eyes to that or
1: Yes. Well I started going along to red. When I first started escorting professionally, I'd been doing it in a very ad hoc sort of unprofessional way beforehand and when I thought, Oh right now I need to start advertising properly and doing this properly I went along to red for advice Mm. and very quickly started learning about the unfairness of the law through talking to people there. And what is RED? RED is Resourcing Health and Education for Sex Workers. And it's a program run by Inner South Community Health Centre, which is now Star Health, and it had its origins way back in the eighties with the Prostitutes Collective of Victoria, which was the very first sex worker rights program run by sex workers to get government funding. It was also the very first sex workers' rights programme to introduce the Ugly Mugs database, and at the time they were printing out pamphlets with details of men to look out for. This was informing the street workers at the time. Because when PCV was first set up, there was a much larger population of street-based sex workers. All that's changed now. This is way back in the mid-'80s, and it was... A groundbreaking initiative and yeah, and it was the very first the first Sex Workers' Rights organization to, to receive some government funding. And you do some work with the Sex Work Law Reform Victoria? Yes, yes I do. I'm a member of the group, a founding member of the group, and we are incorporated not for profit group made up of sex workers, former or current sex workers. We have a website we're very proud of which has got everything you need to know about sex work on the law and we're always challenging stigma. We're strictly about law reform, we're strictly about changing the outdated laws that exist in Victoria at the moment. There's a lot of work still to be done but of course as you probably know this is a great year to be in sex work law reform because you know, the Victorian government is, is about to hold a review into the law headed by Fiona Patton, and we are beyond excited about that. It's, it's a great thing, and we very much hope that Victoria will be the fourth jurisdiction in the world to decriminalise sex work after New South Wales, New Zealand, and last year the Northern Territory.
0: So, you know, all going to plan, we should be next. And what does that mean for sex workers in Victoria?
1: It means the removal of criminal penalties associated with activities that are carried out between consenting adults in private. So it doesn't mean complete deregulation. All work and all labour forces, all industries have some sort of regulation in place. Even the places where sex work is decriminalised, there there are, there are certain regulations around it. What it means is the removal of criminal penalties. It means that what you're doing is not illegal, but the usual things that protect any citizen in any situation, all of those laws stay in place. It's just that you don't have a particular set of criminal laws associated with the sex industry because no other industry has its own set of laws that are policed by the police, and that result in in criminal convictions and and you know arrests, jail, fines, all the rest of it. So, it's, and how can you operate safely when you're exactly. when you can't go to Ex- the police? Exactly, and that's what we want to see changed, and that's really the most important aspect. We want sex workers to be equal, safe, and we want justice for sex workers. We don't want anyone working outside the law. We don't want anyone in any sort of danger because they're inhibited from going to the police.
0: Sex work is just like sex and work. It sounds obvious, but sometimes you just have to break things down a little bit. There are loads of people doing it, The jobs are vast, the people are diverse, and there are a lot of feelings involved. So I wondered if there was any definition. I asked Lisa, what is sex work and what is not sex work? There's a legal definition, and that's
1: quite complicated and quite bizarre in this state, and it does vary from state to state. I would say the exchange of sexual services for money. And how you define that is often debated because people who aren't necessarily having physical contact may also identify as sex workers. Some people think they should, some people think they shouldn't. I think if you self-identify as a sex worker, you are. There are people who are offering what we call sensual or remedial or therapeutic massage, which does have a sensual component, who absolutely don't identify as sex workers. That's their right not to. But in my mind, if what they're doing is touching genitals or bringing someone to pleasure with sensual touch, then I would say that's sex work. If they don't identify, that's up to them. So there's the legal definitions and there is a personal way of identifying, and I think if someone identifies as a sex worker, that's that's fine by me.
0: Lisa challenges stigma in everything she does, and when she began engaging in sex work, she challenged it then too. She began working in the sex industry in her 50s, five years ago now, and has been retired for a year. I wanted to know more about how Lisa got involved, and when we were speaking, Lisa told me she actually went into red. The community health group we mentioned earlier when she decided to become professional but what does professional mean
1: right well I'd been doing sex work for a good year beforehand via a website for people wanting affairs married people wanting affairs and oh. I'd been doing it in a very ad hoc way where I'd have you know I'd, I'd meet these men and invite them to have an affair with me and help me out financially, quote, and I I sort of said, you know, they could show their appreciation in dollars and, you know, if a, a unit of appreciation was $1, then I'd be happy to receive, you know, 300 units of appreciation. <laughs> and, and as it happened at that time, I met plenty of men who were happy to, you know, meet me under those circumstances and I ended up with a few regulars that I kept wow. seeing. and. But then I started to realise that I couldn't actually put parameters around it because officially I was having an affair, not doing sex work. I couldn't really limit limit the meetings to just one strict hour. It was much harder to navigate services. You know, it was just harder to have the boundaries clear all around and it was harder to put you know, my gentleman friends off calling me in between meetings and, you know, because when you call it an affair, there are certain expectations. When you actually identify as a professional sex worker, then you put the parameters around. You offer these services and you don't do things you don't want to do. And it's much more clear. Mm, clear Because there's that
0: emotional tie to the idea of an affair, I guess, as well. The
1: expectations, yeah. yes, on on the on the part of the other party, at least, were yeah. were, were really different, yeah. and it actually became just burdensome trying to put parameters around what I was doing. And then I thought, well, look, I'm I'm doing sex work. I knew I was doing sex work privately in my mind. I was I was thinking it was sex work, and I thought, look, I should just put up an ad and be an escort and do this professionally. Mm. So that was that was the difference between doing it. As an amateur and doing it as a professional.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess you you draw up your own contract at that point and you say, this is an hour of my time or... That's right. Mm. And and you're clear about what you do and what you don't do.
1: And when you meet someone and you arrange a booking, they understand what
0: you do and what you don't do and that there is a time limit on it. And mm. Did you know what your boundaries were going to be, what you wanted to do and what you didn't want to do before you began sex work?
1: Well, that's a really good question because doing sex work helped me work that out. And at the time, I was still thinking, well, you know, if I fancy the person, then I'll I'll do this, we'll do that. Or, you know, like kissing them, for instance. And becoming professional was a different way of thinking about that. It's okay, well, what do I offer as a service? They come in expecting to be able to engage in this 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 activity, and it's not about attraction. It's about something that I'm offering as a as a as a professional, as a as a worker. So that kind of changed it as well, and I think I put my own feelings much more to the side after I became professional, so to speak but that didn't mean that I didn't meet clients I was really attracted to and that that's always a bonus mm. you know that it's really fun when when you do actually meet someone that you can really fancy and just let go and have a great time and yeah. you know I guess I wasn't always as professional as I could have been I mean if I was having a good time I'd stay longer off the clock you know I'd um yeah just linger really and I would often bring bring my myself to bookings. In fact, I nearly always did bring my true self to bookings. And depending on, on the dynamic between myself and whoever I was seeing, it, it could become a bit fuzzy at times, mm. which I think is not wrong. It's It might not be professional and it might set up expectations if they were seeing someone else, for example. But I was like, you know, I wanted to be relaxed about it.
0: And yeah you never I guess you never want to close yourself off to enjoying the moment and being in that moment anyway yes. whether that's sex casually or sex professionally or yes. anything. Yes.
1: That's right. If you're having a
0: good time just have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If you if you go by the clock and you leave yes. at your 60 minutes
1: You've missed out, possibly. No, You've missed that's, out. That's right. There were definitely those moments. There were other times when you're watching the clock and trying not to, you know, make that too obvious. We really are going to get out the door when when it's time to get out the door. But there are other times
0: where look, you're just yeah, having, yeah. having fun and enjoy it and carry mm. on. And I think, like, when I've had a bad day at work, I, can, I go home and I'll pour a glass of wine, I'll put my feet up and I'll just moan about the day that I've had. Is it harder for for being in, in as a sex worker to Most definitely. Yes. Yeah, Most it...
1: definitely. When I started out doing it in, in the amateur way and even then once I was doing it professionally, I didn't know anyone else doing it. And it wasn't until I actually did go into red and start chatting to them and I finally met some other sex workers. Honestly I didn't know anyone. I threw myself in the deep end and I wasn't able to debrief. And looking back now, I would say that really did have an impact on How I felt about my life at the time. And it was quite stressful. It was quite stressful because, you know, you never, because you're working in isolation, there's no training manual, there's no, you can't look it up on YouTube, how to be a sex worker. You know, you can't really, apart from reading as much as you can, you can't really know if you're doing the right thing in bookings or not. How friendly do you have to be? How enthusiastic do you have to be? And I think I made the mistake that a lot of new workers do, where you give far too much, far too soon, and don't, Sort of put enough boundaries in place, and I realized, you know, after learning from other sex workers that I had been giving far too much far too soon, and which was a problem if you know if I wasn't really having a good time myself. So, and as far as being able to have a good moan about work over a glass of wine with a friend, you need other sex workers to do that, and you really do need to talk to people who know what it's like because there's a particular sort of fatigue that comes from. Not having loads of physical sex, although of course that's really tiring, but the very intense relating that can be quite exhausting. And did you did you tell many people at the beginning? I, I told almost nobody. In fact, really nobody. I, I didn't tell anybody. I ended up telling... I, I live with, with my, my adult children and I, I did tell them because I certainly didn't want them hearing about it from anyone else and that was interesting sort of conversation. They were mostly concerned that I was fine psychologically but in terms of my social group, I didn't tell anyone until I'd been doing it for quite a while, maybe one or two years in. And then I was quite careful about who I told as well. I didn't want to have to justify what I was doing or defend what I was doing or go into endless conversations about the the politics of it. And also by that time I'd met other sex workers and I was having you know deep and interesting conversations about the politics of it with them.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah, so yeah. even now only about half the people I'm good friends with know about it. I Do think you think... They, um it's still seen as a secret, not as a secretive job, but people do hold it close to most their chest for a really long most time. definitely. The stigma is very real, mm. very real. And also
1: because if you're talking to someone who isn't a sex worker, the minute you say that you've done or have done or are doing sex work, you fairly much have to launch into an explanation. You fairly much have to become an ambassador for the whole industry. You have to explain so much to people. It can become just tiresome. And so you really probably want to avoid just having to, yeah, defend your choices. Are you more open about it now? Now that it's behind me, I am, definitely. And that's really because, yes, it's behind me. I'm into the politics now and the activism side of it. And I'm not having to navigate my own ambivalence about it. By the time I gave it up, which was just about a year ago now, I had my last client about a year ago, I'd become ambivalent. And you need your own space to work that out. And what you don't need is advice from people who've never done it. And so I think you have to be quite protective of where you put your emotional energy around sex work because you obviously give so much to your clients and you have to look after yourself. And part of looking after yourself is making sure that you're completely safe, because even the most well-meaning people will ask quite insensitive questions, not because they want to be judgmental, but because they just have a set of ideas that you know everyone thinks they know about sex work. Mm -hmm. Everyone has an opinion about it. Everyone has quite strong feelings about it. And they may or may not be concerned for your well-being, but that can be a misguided or misplaced concern. And so often you have to reassure someone about something that might not be bothering you but something else might be bothering you that you want to talk about but that will be reframed but if you're talking to another sex worker who's had experience they know exactly what you mean and you don't have to put it in context so to speak
0: your last client was just over a year ago do you remember any emotions that you had did you know going into it that that was going to be your final client No, no, I had bookings
1: lined up after that and I think I went away for a short period of time and there was something about the clarity that came from just leaving the country, having a holiday, and I came back and I thought, no, no, I'm done. Mm. And I hadn't realised that before I left. I fully intended to see someone upon my return and I spent a short time trying to talk myself into it and I thought. Why am I trying to talk myself into it? I don't want to do it. Mm. It's time to stop. And I didn't want to bring that to bookings either. I didn't want to bring resentment or a sense of being over it or and I, I knew I wasn't going to enjoy it if I met up with this person again. I just, you know, I'd already sort of ditched the regulars by then. <laughs> so really, you know, the winding down process, it it was obvious now, looking back on it, there was a, a definite winding down process. Did you enjoy it while you were while you were working? Mostly, yes. Mostly I did, for sure. Yeah, it's quite stressful before you meet someone, and I think I was always anxious. And often the minute you meet the person or you go into the room and they're there, the anxiety dissipates, and then you can give over to it. Look, I did enjoy it, but at the same time, it does come with a, a level of stress and anxiety with each new person. But I had some lovely clients, and I had some lovely times, and it was a lot of fun for a while.
0: (laughs) The idea of female empowerment is a massive misconception about why people engage in sex work. I'm sure every individual has their own story and I'm sure some sex workers will find their work empowering, especially if they feel fully in control and if they really love what they do, they might feel wholly empowered. But it's a word that gets bandied around a lot and I wondered if it's something that grinds on sex workers when people tell them that they must feel empowered and really they're the ones doing the hard work, they're the doing the messy jobs, they're doing the hard labour. Can they feel empowered all the time?
1: Sometimes you feel good about what you're doing, sometimes you don't. You have, like you were saying before when we were talking before, you have a good day, you have a bad day. No other profession is expected to be self actualized or empowered in that way. So sex workers are pretty tired of hearing that. And it's a question that, that comes up and you think, well, are you empowered by what mm. you do? Mm. I mean, and it's almost as though we have to have a, a dichotomy around our thinking about it. You know, you're either empowered or you're abject, whereas you're just someone working. That's
0: The good days, the bad days. The good days, the bad days. No, rock the,
1: up. You go to work, you do your bit, and you go home. That's that's right. Mm. And that's how it should be. And the sooner we see it like that. And, look, you don't always see it like that yourself either. I mean, we're all individuals, and we all have our own... You know, no one's that clear cut in their thinking and your thinking can change from hour to hour or minute to minute or day to day like like anyone doing anything. Sex workers don't talk about no. being empowered. No. I haven't heard a sex worker say, oh, I feel, I feel empowered by what I do. I found, for me, learning to set boundaries and parameters, I found it easier to do after I took up sex work. But then again, it's a unique situation where boundaries and parameters have to be set up. So you're kind of forced to. But I learned a hell of a lot about myself doing it. And that was as valuable as as, as the money or as
0: it, it was a very valuable part of the experience. And how diverse is the sex industry in general? So diverse, incredibly
1: diverse. A lot of people, when they think of sex workers, they think of young women. Now, I was in my 50s when I took it up. I think I was probably, you know, the oldest worker in town at at one stage. Now, a good 20% at least, we calculate, of sex workers are male, Mm. male doing male-to-male sex workers. There are transgender sex workers. There are sex workers of all ages, all types. It's the most singularly diverse set of people
0: you can imagine, actually. There just isn't a type. Do you think that... People find it hard to believe that mums can be sex workers and grandmothers can be sex workers and I think they do. I think we still have a
1: way in our culture of putting women into boxes, of seeing women of certain age at a certain stage of their lives. And often once you're postmenopausal, you can be seen as sexless. Older women can be seen as sexless. Or if you are You know, a sexy older woman, it can be pathologized or it can be ridiculed. It's never just neutral. I think if you think of the difference between an ageing man, I mean, we we do have the, the trope of the dirty old men, man. Dirty old man, we know there are plenty of them. But a man isn't defined by his attractiveness to women throughout his whole life. And then it isn't assumed that he's no longer attractive to his peers, say. Whereas, you know, women are defined by their physical attractiveness or their apparent attractiveness forever. Mm. From a very young age and then all of a sudden you um, are considered not attractive anymore. And it's really important, I think, for the older sex worker to to hold on to that sense of herself as someone desirable. I had a lot of young men as clients. I was really, well, pleasantly surprised because, of course, I've internalised that sort of notion about being older and not being as in demand. And a lot of young men fantasise about intimacy with an older woman. And a lot of young men were really keen to... Try me out, so to speak, and you know, they were honeys on the whole, yeah, yeah,
0: spunks. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, and do they disclose that information to you, or did they? Did they they tell you before? They would say, This is a fantasy, this is a fantasy of mine. Mm. And if they said that, would that change how you would bring yourself to the to the No, diamond. look, I, I'm lazy. I couldn't be bothered being uber
1: glamorous or uber anything. I was just myself. Yeah. I, I came in and obviously, you know, you have to be perhaps a bit more enthusiastic um, or vain <laughs> enthusiasm, depending on who you're seeing. But, you know, I was interested in, in them as well and... Yeah. Mm. I'm just remembering one young man I saw I had a a really nice time in bed with him and then we ordered a pizza and (laughs) and he was really surprised by that. But (laughs) we were having a nice time and I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm enjoying myself. He was a sweetie and, you know, it was a very positive experience Mm. for him. Mm. You know, he hadn't been particularly experienced and and it it was just nice. It was a nice
0: afternoon. Yeah. Do you think that clients... Are humanised at all? Oh, they're even less humanised than
1: sex workers. There's a lot of stigma around clients. People assume they're seedy, sleazy, dangerous men. Of course, a few are. Most of them are just blokes. And you wouldn't believe just how ordinary those blokes are. And I mean ordinary in the old-fashioned sense. One way I used to explain it to someone was, go into a bank and look at the men that come into the bank there you have clients of sex workers. I mean, in my own experience, they tended to be mostly in a relationship of some sort.
0: And did they speak much in your experience about their relationships or were they there to, to sort of put everything to one side and be in the moment?
1: Mostly the latter. I had a few whining about not being understood by their wives. I had A few who admitted that, you know, the partner was away and now was the time to engage in a fantasy. But mostly, of course, they didn't want to talk and I didn't ask. I think if we stop demonising clients and start seeing it as an important element of society, it's not going away. There will always be a demand for it. And personally, I'd rather see men avail themselves of sex workers, engage sex workers, then have pseudo-relationships with women. I would rather have professional boundaries in place
0: if that's what they want. Lisa was generous enough to share her story and her history with me. And speaking about just one individual's experience and history with the sex industry made me think about the overarching story in Australia. I wondered if Lisa could shine some light on the history of sex work and what we know about the oldest profession in the world in Victoria.
1: Victoria has a proud history of sex workers and sex worker activists. In fact, just recently, there's been a memorial erected in Castle Main for a woman called Fanny Finch. And she was a woman of colour. She was a sole parent. She was a sex worker and she was a sex worker rights activist. And I think in the days before women had the vote, she found a loophole to go and vote as well. She must have been so remarkable for her time. Well, she was obviously remarkable for her time and just such a strong person. I really am looking forward to finding out more about her. In the early days of Victoria, when, when Melbourne was a gold rush town, there were women who ran very successful businesses. There was a lot of sex work. They were very involved in the local community. They were propping up a lot of businesses. There's been quite a lot of research done around some of these women who became well-known, like Madam Brussels, who, you know whose real name was Caroline Hodgson but there were women who were quite powerful and pillars of community. They really were, and they were helping other women, and they were basically integral to their community. And sex work wasn't illegal, but they were constantly harassed under such things as vagrancy laws and often subjected in other states to some fairly draconian work around public health they were were seen to be you know carriers of vd and there was such a thing as a lock-up hospital in other states where women would be forcibly taken out of their lives and and quarantined and things like that and the victorian history of sex work activism has it, it is a proud history like we were talking before the first ugly mugs reports were initiated by the Prostitutes Collective of Victoria and it was the first sex worker rights organisation to be government funded. There's, there's a proud history, there really is, and we are a, a
0: building on that. History is not just something that happened in the 1800s, though, and it didn't stop with Fanny Finch or any of the Melbourne madams. The world is changing rapidly, and even recent developments in technology have changed the history and the stories for sex workers. Victoria brought in their partial decriminalisation of sex work in 1985. But we're in a completely different world now. I mean, unrecognisably different. I wonder how different the industry is now from when it was first partially legalised. What different
1: world are we in? Completely different world, completely different world. One of the most obvious changes is the reduction in the number of street-based sex workers. There are very few now and so many workers, the overwhelming majority of sex workers are working privately as I did. They're advertising on the internet, they're running their own businesses and they aren't working in brothels, they aren't working for agencies, they aren't doing street-based sex work, the overwhelming majority of sex workers are working Independently. So that's been one of the biggest changes. And that's to do with advertising on the internet. It's to do with the whole you know, technology, the changes in technology. Even mobile phones. Mobile phones started to make a difference. And now sex workers are very dependent on Twitter to get clients. And you do all your advertising over the internet. Whereas once upon a time you put an ad in the newspaper. I mean, I, I lived in the UK in the days where sex workers would put cards up in phone booths. Oh, you yeah. Know, and they'd get endless calls from from time wasters it must have been just horrendous Mm. actually having to answer the phone and having 90 out of 100 calls be some galah the thought of that is quite horrifying there's not much
0: screening that can go on when you've just got a phone number out there and it rings constantly exactly exactly in the experience that you've had in conversation with other sex workers and your own experience has the internet made it a safer place I
1: think so. Look, I I haven't done sex work outside of, you know, the internet era. Certainly you, you know, you will do a Google search on a phone number. And if you get a name, then you'll do a Google search on that name. Having said that, most clients don't give you their real name. They're... Are certainly, forums and online chats that sex workers have, and you learn how to screen and how to. How to protect yourself, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I think the the importance of online forums and online sex worker communities cannot be overemphasised. And it is one of the mechanisms that sex workers use to keep themselves safe, which is why it was such a blow when the foster sister laws in the United States were passed, which brought down a lot of those forums and a lot of the conversations that sex workers working in isolation were having with each other, and it made a... a Big difference to mm. the safety of workers and and to people's income. I mean, they were no longer able to advertise, so it was a real blow for sex workers. And that's the sort of thing that activists and sex worker rights, you know, people fighting for sex workers' rights are, are constantly, you know, incensed by and and battling, challenging those sorts of changes.
0: For those of you who might not be familiar with the Foster Saster Bill. The foster sister laws in the US were brought in by the Trump administration in 2018 with an attempt to abolish sex trafficking. And who wouldn't want that, right? Sex trafficking is disgusting, it's not consensual, it's slavery, and it has to be abolished. So not surprisingly, the bill was passed with a massive majority. But this sex trafficking bill has failed miserably. It hasn't done what it was set out to do, but instead made the everyday life of workers incredibly dangerous. Foster Sesta holds websites and digital platforms accountable for any sex facilitated on their site, which means sex workers can no longer advertise online. They can't vet their clients online either. They cannot share experiences of other sex workers. They can't share information on bad clients. Their online activity is being tracked and it means that sex workers face an ever-increasing, isolating world. And the outcome was sex workers were terrified to go back online and they took to the streets. Where vetting is harder and violence is so much more likely. Foster Sesta is an anti-sex work bill masked as a sex trafficking bill. Two very different things. It's not done what it set out to do and it's just made it incredibly dangerous. We know how things are changing online, but I asked Lisa how language has changed.
1: Well, we don't use the term prostitute anymore, or at least sex workers tend not to. Some do still, but we're aware that language carries so much stigma, and it's weighted with historical associations, it's weighted with judgment, it's weighted with... When you describe someone as a prostitute, there's a sense of the abject that comes with that. There's a sense of someone who's – it's its a sad word. And even worse is the term prostituted woman – And when you hear someone use that expression, you can be pretty sure that they're very anti-sex work and that they're probably supportive of legislation that makes sex work dangerous for sex workers. And that's a phrase that's used in a very considered way by people who would like to eliminate sex work altogether. And it perpetuates the myth that all sex workers are women and that women don't choose to do sex work. Both of those things are false, as we know, But there are people who want to continue to believe that there's money in rescuing sex workers, so to speak. And there's a a set of beliefs, there's a narrative that's based, again, in old-fashioned morality that's just no longer relevant. And language is a giveaway, definitely. Going back to your original point, language is, is very telling. And I always encourage people to say sex worker instead of prostitute because we just want to keep emphasising it's work just leave it at that,
0: it's work Prejudice against sex workers isn't a new phenomenon we mentioned how the Catholic Church in France made history by offering sanctuary to the protesting sex workers in the 1970s and Father Louis Blanc was a huge sex worker sympathiser The Christian faith, in one sense, has a history of supporting sex workers. Mary Magdalene was Jesus' favourite disciple, so with that in mind, the light that the Christian tradition has shone on sex workers, we could argue, has been positive. The other side of that, though, is the myth of two Marys. Mary, the mother of Jesus, a virgin who only is elevated to sainthood because she's a virgin, against Mary Magdalene, the prostitute rescued by Jesus and a reformed woman. The Madonna whore complex is the idea that ultimately divides women into two categories. Neither category is, um, is particularly good. It's virgins or whores. So you've got the whores, which are the worldly women, the fallen women, And the Mary Magdalene's of the world, basically the bad women who have sex. And then you've got the virgins or the Madonnas who, interestingly enough, are in no way interesting at all. The characteristics are said to be childlike, naive, without any knowledge of the world and ultimately are completely reliant on a man to teach them the ways of the world. So how can we win here when we've just got whores and virgins? Many people think it comes from this notion that women who make their own way in the world come back broken. And men who make their own way in the world come back stronger and better and more attractive. In the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church began labelling Mary Magdalene a prostitute to spread their message that even the worst type of person imaginable, a prostitute, can be forgiven by Jesus. This soon made its way from religion and scripture to art and culture, and ended up penetrating our collective psyches until Mary was only ever known as the Whore and nothing else. I'm using the words prostitute and whore to describe Mary Magdalene at the moment, as this is how she has been described mostly throughout history, with the more derogatory terms. And I think it's important to remember that this is how Jesus' favourite and only female disciple has been remembered throughout history. When attitudes, stereotypes or bias make their way into our unconscious minds, the ideas tend to bake themselves into our thinking, If you're a woman you will have probably been affected in one way or another with the notion of the madonna whore complex and this idea of bad women having sex was only ever going to breed one thing whorephobia whorephobia is the word to describe the fear and hate of sex workers and adopts the idea that sex workers are dirty spreaders of disease public nuisances, criminals, victims, unskilled women, and this just is not the case. Poor phobia is at its most violent when sex workers are killed. The serial killer who took that opportunity to attack and murder vulnerable sex workers in the 1970s in France was never found or identified. Jack the Ripper never found or identified. Sex workers die and it often goes under the radar. Writer, sex worker and activist Thierry Schulfhauser writes extensively about whorephobia and it's designed to control women. Thierry writes that just as homophobia and toxic masculinity are used in our society to control the actions of men, whorephobia exists to control the actions of women. Women are brought up to fear the shame of the slut or the whore stigma and it's used as a baiting stick to control every move we make and limit our autonomy. We live in a whorephobic society, that's just a fact, but it doesn't stop people being fascinated with the idea of the whore and sex sex workers have made their way onto the big screens, in blockbusters, whether it's the hooker with a heart of gold or the rescued woman. I asked Lisa why she thinks we're all so interested in sex work and despite our fascination and interest, why we've all made up our minds that buying and selling sex is wrong and shameful.
1: We're still raised to be romantic, and there's still that underlying belief that sex is about true intimacy. And when someone challenges that, it's confronting. And I think we still don't quite want to believe that you can feign intimacy, that a sex work booking is a facsimile of intimacy. It starts and there it finishes. And people, struggle with that I think but what interests me too is that we know that you know so many people are hooking up with strangers every night of the week via tinder or whatever no one seems to be so concerned about the lack of true intimacy that there may or may not be on those occasions but when it comes to something you're being paid for the world gets pissy about it And I think the world doesn't like women to capitalise on their erotic capital. That was a phrase that a UK journalist came up with, women's erotic capital. And that when we take it into our own hands to use that for cold, hard cash – a whole pile of narratives come into play about who we are and what we're doing. And I think that it's, this, it's that slap in the face to morality and, and to romance. And I really think the challenge is that people just don't really want to believe that you can separate sex and love. Where It's so painfully obvious that human beings
0: have been doing it forever. Sex workers around the world will be celebrating today. Their history is still being written and wherever you're listening to this, you can guarantee that there's a sex worker in your community fighting secretly or openly for their right to work. If sex work continues to be criminalized, it will forever be underground and there will always be victims. Lisa continues to fight for law reform in Victoria for consensual adult sex workers to engage freely, legally and safely with their clients. Do your research, read as much as you can. It's a fascinating industry and, you
1: know, it's worth becoming as informed as you can. And that's one of the best ways to support sex workers. And that way you will understand the need for law reform and that way you will come to understand that
0: sex workers work. And if you're looking to celebrate today, why don't you find out more about your local sex worker community? Read up about the activism happening near you. Send somebody who has no fucking idea this podcast. Tell them to have a listen and to get involved. And that's the end of this episode of Shut Up, She's Talking. If you're interested in learning more about Lisa's work, please check out this week's episode notes, as I'll have all the relevant links there. Thanks for listening.